Welcome to Between the Gutters Podcast, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with me is our other co-host. This is Drew. How's it going, everybody? What's up? Drew the Spoo. Drew the True. True the Drew. <laughs> Albert the Squirt. Gross. Albert the Word. <laughs> Gross. That's just, that's, I'm done. Uh. Well, it's hard to think of things that rhyme with your name, dude, so... Yeah, I just went with yeah. whatever came to mind. It's unfortunate that the one thing that it does rhyme with is something that's uh, that I associate with a sebaceous gland. <laughs> <laughs> it, I don't even know what that gland is, but I'm just going to assume it's something dirty. It's a leaky, weepy, uh, spewy gland. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, it's it's I. Yeah, my name isn't associated with any... It ain't a flower. I'll tell you that. Okay. <laughs> Albert the Kurt. <laughs> Bert the Kurt. Bert the Wurt. <laughs> so, today, what we are going to discuss is... We're going to do something a little different. Today, we're going to discuss a film. We're going to discuss an anime film at that. We are going to discuss... The cult classic Akira. <laughs> is that uh, a cult classic, or is it just a classic? Uh, uh, uh I guess it's a classic. Uh, okay, fine. It's not. Maybe it depends on who you ask, but uh, you're right. It's probably more widely known as a classic. Um, so just a little bit of a background. A little bit of uh, insight into how Between the Gutters works, really. What we Well, we've been spending a lot of time in quarantine just watching random YouTube videos, and you never know where inspiration comes from. And mm-hmm. one of the things that has moved us as of late is uh, we've been buying a lot of anime, and me and Drew being the people that we are, after just watching so much anime over the course of quarantine... We uh we're not satisfied with just watching the show. We want to consume things about the shows well well beyond what the surface uh has mm-hmm. to tell us. Mm-hmm. So we we've been on YouTube a lot. We've watched a lot of anime review videos and we have to say that we're very we were very awe, awed and inspired by some of the content that some of the people have put out there. And uh, we want. Yeah, we decided there, there we are wanted- some uh, anime channels that make some pretty good, well produced, and really well written video essays. Absolutely. Like, I, I think just uh, in addition to watching reviews of stuff, I think the the channels that really grab my attention are the ones that really take the time to produce videos that are essentially essays in video form. Yeah, yeah. Like, I would love. To, you know, someday, like, uh, if we continue to do this, well, in all likelihood we will, but uh, to continue to up our game, and I, I'd love to add some production, and, uh, but, you know, as it is, this is our starting point, and uh, we hope that we can provide some great insight into the classic Akira. Akira! <laughs> Kaneda <laughs> Tetsuo 
<laughs> so if you guys don't know the movie, that is uh, that was one of those uh, inside jokes or uh, one of those observations that a lot of people make that a lot of towards the end, a lot of the scenes are just the two of them yelling at each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing I was going to say is that watching a lot of anime lately, uh, it did get me checking out some podcasts where people talk about anime so i was listening to some of that stuff and and uh hearing people you know basically do uh you know explain what they enjoyed and appreciated and what they noticed and learned from whatever it was uh that they watched it just kind of motivated me to to uh you know dig deep into uh the between the gutters concept of what we can talk about you know because i i always thought it'd be cool listening to those other anime podcasts i would think oh it'd be cool to talk about some anime but our podcast is a comic book podcast so whatever we talk about it, it still have to be you know related to comics in some way and fortunately with a lot of anime uh there's, there's a, a lot of mega tie-in yeah there's a sure. bunch of anime that's based on manga yeah. so uh for us i think the obvious one that we gravitated towards was akira (laughs) did i say that right yeah (laughs) it's just fun to shout into the mic (laughs) (laughs) if anyone's listening to this on headphones we apologize (laughs) this this episode's probably gonna have a lot more shouting than the typical (laughs) if we blow out one of your eardrums our bad (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> oh so, man. So with with Akira, we we actually talked about the manga uh, quite some time ago. We talked about it back in episode twenty three. So this episode is episode sixty three. So it's been you know quite some time. Yeah. We talked Solid about forty episodes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We talked about Akira. Uh, when it came in uh, at number six in our list of top 25 Marvels. And if, if you're, uh, if you haven't been following us uh, for that long, uh, the reason why Akira was on our list of top 25 Marvels was because the original English version of Akira was published by Epic Comics, which was an imprint of Marvel back in the eighties. So that that's why it made our list, even though it's not really, you know, associated with Marvel necessarily and Marvel doesn't publish it anymore. Just the fact that Marvel did publish it at some point, that was enough to yeah. shoot it up our list. Yeah. It's it's a significant piece of work, and we didn't want to ignore it. Yeah. And honestly, I do like that the podcast is an opportunity for us to kind of dig, dig deep into the Marvel well and to just pick out stuff that can be educational to people, you know? Uh, like, yeah. don't, don't get me wrong. It's fun talking about uh, the X Men and Spider Man, and you know uh, all the stuff that people would expect to hear about on a podcast about comics. But uh, yeah, I, I really want to take this as an opportunity to really expand my knowledge as well as to expand the knowledge of those. Uh, uh, of people who have an interest in comics. Yeah, exactly. Because comics is, I mean, despite all the time that we spend on 
uh, disproportionate number of our episodes speaking about superheroes. Comics is so much more than superheroes. So Absolutely. it's always fun to talk about comics that aren't superhero comics. Yeah. Yeah. Not that man. it's not fun to talk about superheroes. I mean, we, we talk about superhero comics all the time, but I like a little variety too, you know? Yeah. 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 And truth be told, so much of uh, the industry is superhero comics anyways. So, yeah, you know, it's not like we're at a loss of uh, content when it comes to that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, and, we could spend, we could devote a whole series talking about bad superhero comics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah all right so do you want to give a uh non-spoilered version of a description for akira uh, uh are you asking me for a spoil free version i believe i am a hundred percent spoil free that what that means for those of you who are uh, listening to our podcast for the first point, first time, that is a hundred percent free of spoy. <laughs> 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 there is zero spoy in this. <laughs> I, I don't know exactly what spoy is. Spoy, come on, spoy. <laughs> sounds delicious. <laughs> uh. It's yeah, but in brief, it just means that we're we're not going to uh, include spoilers in the very brief description of uh, Akira. Okay. Before so the, we, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So the the basic summary or synopsis of Akira is that it it takes place in a dystopian version of 2019. So. Uh, keep in mind that the original manga that the film was based on was made in 1982, or it started in 1982. So uh, the story of Akira is set in 2019 in a dystopian Tokyo, or I guess it's called Neo-Tokyo now. So it's a, it's a city that is kind of... It, there's not a whole ton of details, but it, it just feels like one of those dystopians where the military has a crazy amount of influence. Um, there's a lot of politicians or conglomerates or something running uh, running the, the place. And, you know, there's a lot of technology, but there's still a lot of poverty also. Yeah. And the story is about this uh, teenage biker gang, basically th this group of teenage boys who like to ride motorcycles who have a one of their members is named Tetsuo and at the very uh, beginning of the film he basically gets into an accident the government or the military takes him and from there he develops these uh, psychic or telekinetic abilities that make him extremely powerful, but also very destructive and psychologically unstable. The rest of his biker gang uh, is trying to find him. And there are some other parties uh, that are trying to f uh, find him and these other psychic children. But uh, it seems like the, I'd say the main thrust of it, of the film is uh, the leader of the biker game, gang, the leader of the biker gang, Canada, who takes it upon himself to track down Tetsuo. And, you know, in the course of the story, he ends up encountering uh, those other parties that are 
interested in the military's psychic children. Mm. Uh, yeah, is there, I don't know, is there anything else that we um, need to say? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm trying to find a way to phrase this so that it, it, it's in line with our spoifreeness. Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess what looms over all of this is that Tetsuo, so in Tetsuo becoming uh, psychically active and developing these powers, he he learns about this enigmatic figure uh, mm-hmm. called Akira. So you know, hence where the name comes from. You know, it's just uh, Akira. This, Akira! <laughs> so so um, you know, he's. Tetsuo uh, is is as you mentioned just this destructive psychic force, but underneath it all, in, in the backdrop, the thing that's hanging over them is the fact that uh, somewhere out there, there's this other entity called Akira. That yeah, I forgot to mention that important uh, element of the backstory. The reason why uh, in 2019 they're living in a dystopia is because. Some 30, 30 something years before this story happens, there was basically World War Three in Japan. Yeah. And it happened because Akira, who was this uh, psychic, psychically powered uh, child, he ended up causing this crazy massive explosion that just decimated, uh, decimated yeah. the city or the country. Yeah. yeah. So they're, they're afraid that what Tetsuo is like his where his power levels are at now he's he's gonna be he's another gonna one another cataclysm yeah exactly yeah. The, so these kids are, that yeah he's he's basically a walking psychic atomic bomb <laughs> is yeah. what they're afraid of and yeah. and i do feel like that's uh well again not not to not to enter into spoil full territory but <laughs> um but uh I think it's an apt description just because just because of uh, the era and the time period that this story was written. Um, the the idea of the atomic bomb is very prevalent in the background, e- even yeah. though they don't actually discuss it or mention it. Uh, I'm not even like sure in the story. If, if it's considered an atomic bomb because if it was just a psychic explosion yeah uh i mean if if it were an atomic bomb and not a psychic explosion then yeah. wouldn't the radiation prevent them from rebuilding all the city over it well okay so i'm not i again i don't want to like go too much into it until we like get into the point where we're ready to spoil a bunch of stuff but okay, okay. uh in brief what what i'm trying to say is that i I do think that the destructive capacity of uh, these telepaths really does thematically uh, reflect the reality of something. Mm -hmm. It reflects very much their day-to-day reality at the time of living in a post-atomic bomb age. Yeah. So, so, so... 
So I don't take that as a literal uh, comparison as much as it is the idea of a thematic comparison to a weapon that can basically wipe out entire cities. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Makes yeah. sense. Right. So mm-hmm. that is our uh, brief description of Akira. Yeah. Um, I mean, if, if you haven't seen it yet, I would definitely recommend it it's like we said it's a it's a classic film so yeah it's it's worth seeking out um but even if you uh haven't seen it uh you know hopefully if you continue listening to what we have to say maybe it'll uh inspire you to check it out yeah so at this point uh, unless you have anything else to say, like, is it fair to say that we can just go into f- spoil, spoilful, just straight spoilful <laughs> discussions uh, on, on the subject? Yeah, man. Yeah, let, let's. Uh, okay. Let's just dive into a full, straight-on conversation about the film. Okay. Awesome. So uh, you mentioned that it was a classic uh, earlier, and uh, one of the things that makes it such a classic is the fact that it's one of the stories that essentially defines a genre. And in this case, that genre is cyberpunk. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you have any, can you, Drew, can you give us a brief discussion or, or just a very brief uh, explanation of what cyberpunk is and yeah, and we can go from there. Okay, so I'd say cyberpunk is a subgenre of science fiction that's typically some kind of dystopian future or dystopian society because, uh, you know, the word punk implies that there is something that requires being, that requires a rebellion of some sort. Mm. And you don't really get that if you're talking about a utopian kind of society. So it, it's definitely. <clears throat> some kind of dystopian future and I'd say typically involves uh, a combination of high technology and really low class people. (laughs) If that makes sense. Uh, It's it's like, there's a lot of technology that comes with the future, but people haven't progressed at the rate that technology has advanced. So although the technology is better, human yeah. beings are just as scummy as ever yeah like that's a good way to put it um it's it's yeah it's really just i guess a very realistic take on uh on society now, maybe even cynical just in the sense that uh yeah. it, for the longest saying yeah it's basically saying that the the future is going to have all these great uh, advances in terms of technology but yeah people they're not maybe you wouldn't even say people just stay the same you could even say people are getting worse because of the technology and you know yeah. there's all these horrible things that people yeah. can do to each other because of the technology that exists now <laughs> yeah 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 that's yeah it's pretty true like i we can look at akira and i can honestly say that a lot of their technology even compared to what we have now is pretty impressive you know their vehicles are pretty cool and uh in terms of functionality um what's not broken functions better than uh in a more advanced way than anything that we currently have but yeah but at the same time uh everything is in disrepair and disarray 
and you know the buildings look gross the people look gross the streets aren't clean and that's that's a big part of what cyberpunk is and yeah. uh the idea being that it's like you said uh we have all uh technology can give us all these great amenities but people will just continue to at their most cynical continue to be people and they will allow these things to fall into disrepair and there's an argument to be made that like you said uh in in some cases the technology will even allow them to be even the worst possible version of themselves <laughs> yeah yeah human beings yeah. suck man people uh suck. Yeah, I I wake up every day and I just glare at the mirror because yeah. hating starts at home. It does. It does, it does man. <laughs> <laughs> Humanity is a blight upon this planet. Yeah, and the only way we can truly wipe it off is by starting with ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to me, all you kids, ages seven through twelve. Listen to my voice. You've uh, you've left me speechless, Drew. You have left me speechless. <laughs> That's a graduation speech right there. Oh, if only I had grades good enough to have been valedictorian, man. Perhaps if our podcast ever uh, picks up and takes off to a point or where. We're just like world famous, and we get like one of those uh, honorary degrees. Ooh. I want to, I want to give that speech at at a school. <laughs> yeah, that that would be pretty fun, man. <laughs> Today you leave here, and I'm sure you think you're gonna make the world a better place, but I'm gonna tell you, every breath you take is already making the world a worse place. <laughs> <laughs> so all you can do. You just end yourself. <laughs> and Everybody. don't block traffic on your way out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to get home. <laughs> Everybody just stay in your seats and drink this Kool-Aid we're handing out. <laughs> oh, man. Anyways. Yeah. Uh, so, I yeah, I think those are uh, – that's a fair – uh, an apt description of cyberpunk. So you have, uh, you know, advanced technology, but the world is still as ugly as ever, and the people are still as disgusting as gross as ever. Yeah. So yeah, people yeah. are scum. Yeah, yeah. And so we end our podcast. <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny if that was that was it? <laughs> that was our we final just... <laughs> analysis of Kira, guys. <laughs> we just wanted to take this as an opportunity to tell you that you're awful. <laughs> <laughs> all those times in that other episode when albert was calling you guys gutter trash he didn't mean it ironically <laughs> oh man oh man uh. well akira really is a landmark cyberpunk film it, it's definitely one of the ones uh if you're just looking at it aesthetically and the style of the film the artwork uh it it's absolutely one of the films that defines cyberpunk in the public consciousness yeah you know, i do it's, think it's right up there with like blade runner or something yeah i i do think that 
it's it's interesting to me to think of where when I think of stuff like uh, Akira and Blade Runner, as you mentioned. I think another one that's popular in um, cyberpunk circles is Max's Headroom. Is is something? Oh yeah. Uh, but there's also the Matrix from the yeah 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 nineties. But I well, I was gonna say the thing that interests me more is that I don't. It, maybe you know this off the top of your head, Drew, but would you happen to know if Akira and uh, uh, Blade Runner, like, what, what, which came first out of the two, or were they, like, relatively well, close? Blade Runner came first uh, because it was, well, you also have to remember Blade Runner was based on Philip K. Dick novel. Right. Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Right. Uh, I, I don't know if we would look at the novel and point at that novel as uh yeah i'm like, kind of doubtful of that myself cyberpunk. yeah but it, it definitely was influential on cyberpunk yeah and when the movie was made the movie was definitely cyberpunk because that was one of the films that really crystallized the visual aspect of cyberpunk so it, it's at yeah. the point where when you think of cyberpunk you think of shots from Blade Runner, like those cityscapes yeah. where everything is super dense. The, the skyscrapers yeah. are all packed together. They're crazy high. There's a lot of lights and, and electronic signs and billboards. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Things of, things of that nature just populating the environment. Yeah. Where, and, and like the lower you go to the ground, um, to the streets, you know, there's just... The grimier it gets. Exactly. It just gets grimier. Yeah. The The... You can see that there's a lot of poverty and people just living in these yeah. slums that haven't really uh, and for some, advanced with the times. Yeah. And for some weird reason, it's just perpetually dark or gloomy or rainy. <laughs> yeah. It's always rainy. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, I was going to say it's interesting to me that when, when I think of cyberpunk, especially in film as a genre, like when, yeah, like, Ridley Scott just so established the the aesthetic for it that mm. it's interesting to me that some it, it's almost like people got into a room and were just like, "What does every cyberpunk film have to have? We're gonna vote on these things." And every ever since moving forward, every cyberpunk film has some variation of these things, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but that that just shows you the breadth of influence that films like Blade Runner and Akira have had. Yeah. Because everybody yeah. takes those visual tropes and well everybody took those visuals those that visual style and turned them into tropes, you know, because now you always yeah. see you always see yeah. like these these uh totally. those kind of buildings and those kind of cityscapes, you know, a lot of people smoking. Yeah. Uh, it's always dark. Yeah. Like that's just kind of become the signature visual aesthetic for cyberpunk at least yeah. when it comes to film and television yeah. and yeah so much so that even when a bad film does it they're still gonna crypt notes from it because that's it's just kind of a given that that's what you do <laughs> you know yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um but it, it, i did just check uh Blade Runner. Blade Runner was released in '82, and the Akira manga was released in 1982. Also, okay, but see, so that's the interesting thing. It's like I, I don't know. It 
it, it's kind of like that Lieber Mayho Joker thing with uh, the Dark Knight, yeah. where it's like, was this just a a a instance of insane coincidence, or did they just happen to both have the same? Yeah, did they just both happen to look at the world the way it was and come to the same conclusion? Uh, you know, I was looking at some of the extras on the on the Blu-ray disc for yeah. Akira, and there was an old interview with with Katsuhiro Otomo, who uh-huh. uh, I don't even think we've mentioned his name so far, but yeah, we got to mention the creator of Akira. Yeah, yeah, Katsuhiro for sure. Otomo, he's he was the creator of the manga. And he also directed the film, which was kind of unusual. But there was an interview with him uh, on the Blu-ray disc. And the interview was from the 90s, I believe, uh-huh. uh, when they when they first put the film on Laserdisc, if you remember what Laserdiscs are. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the questions that they asked him was, what are some of your influences on Akira? And he did mention Blade Runner as one of the influences like he mentioned a couple of Hollywood films that influenced him in uh-huh. general in, in working on Akira. And the ones I remember were, were Blade Runner and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid. <laughs> I've never seen Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid, but I guess yeah. that one left an impression on Otomo. Yeah. Um, yeah. We did discuss a little bit of that uh, prior to this episode. Uh and you mentioned how, well, uh, okay, based on your tone, I got the impression that you weren't really sure how uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid could be an influence or, like, what the connection was. Yeah, because I've never seen it. All I know yeah. is that it's a Western. Yeah. And the the thing that I was saying, and and in all transparency, like, I, I haven't seen it either, but... Based on what I know of uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, it's it's a movie about uh, two two friends that go on a crime spree, and uh, you know, as as the viewer, even though they're criminals, you're rooting for them because uh, based purely on the story, they're this the act of committing these crimes is their is their act of revolt and it's also their um the thing that bonds them as friends you know that that makes them like blood brothers or something like that you know mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i if i had to guess i would say the influence on akira is very much the fact that uh a large part of akira is about youth in revolt it's about these hooligans essentially who are in this biker gang and, um, you know, although there are a lot of other characters, the, the focal, one of the focal points is Kaneda and Tetsuo. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're, they're the, they're, they're two friends and clearly Kaneda is the leader of the gang. He's, he's the more dominant personality. And even though there's, this rift between the two of them uh, because, you know, no one wants to be anyone's sidekick forever, right? But at the end of the day, uh, 
at least in the film, um, I'd have to think about it if, if it applies to the manga, but at least in the film, like Kaneda and Tetsuo, towards the end, they, I, I don't know if it's a reconciliation, but, you know, there's there's still vestiges of their loyalty to one another there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, like, uh, I guess the friendship in the film seems to take on a more central aspect. I can see that. Uh, yeah. yeah, you know what? I can see that. Especially uh, with the way that it ends, with yeah, the little flashback to when they were really little kids and first yeah. met each other, and kind of helped him uh, from some bullies. Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean. I think because so much of the film, the way that the film is paced, it doesn't really spend a whole lot of time uh, developing the characters or their backstory. Like most of the information we get is just implied through dialogue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then there's those scenes where Tetsuo remembers when he was a kid. And then that scene at the end, when we actually see the first time that they met, Right. I think that gives us this sense that there is more of a history, you know, and that history kind yeah. of drove Kanada uh, to chase Tetsuo throughout the film. Yeah. And I felt like watching the film for the, I think this is like maybe the third or fourth time in like maybe four years, four or five yeah. years for me. Yeah. So I've seen it a few times, but I think that seeing it again uh, for in preparation for this episode kind of reminded me of how the that element of their shared past is more central it just isn't really explicit until until the end yeah i mean it's it's interesting because for for someone watching the film uh i don't i, I don't mean mean to make it sound like it's it's a buddy flick or anything like that because Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid probably is more along the lines of a buddy flick. Because mm -hmm. um, in the in Akira, there's actually their their relationship does become frayed, and heck, the last part of the movie is them fighting each other. It's you know, uh, up up there's up to a point in the film, Kaneda is trying to save Tetsuo, but once Tetsuo, you know, loses control, it becomes a fight. And it's a it's a no holds barred fight at that. Yeah. But but even even the way that they fight, there's there's I, I will say that there's a sense of playfulness to it. Like one of the scenes that I remember is um yeah, uh Tetsuo is just kinda using his powers and you know, he's 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 basically just this really massively powerful telepath and he's just telekinetic. Tele tele Telekin telekin telekineth? <laughs> I don't know what the word for that is. Telekinetic, man. Telekine. Come on, dude. Isn't you, that the you word? Read comics? Isn't wouldn't he be a telekine? Telekine? Nah, nah, they just call him telekinetics. Oh, okay. So he's this okay, so he's just this <laughs> massively powerful telekinetic and he's just, you know, blowing stuff up and uh raising the ground and uh Kaneda's just a dude with with a laser gun and it's a it's a gun on a battery at that so the charges are limited and you know once he's spent all his charges there's this one scene where Kaneda's just like 
I'm going to paraphrase, but he essentially just goes, man, this sucks. Let's just handle it the old way. Let's just do it like fist to fist, you know? <laughs> Put up your dukes. Yeah, he's like, that's the only way. Come on. <laughs> I thought that was kind of a, you know, for for such a high stakes fight for him to step out of the moment and just be like, come on, man. Fight fair. Let's, yeah, let's just let's just do this the old way. Like trade punches with me. Like there's there's a certain playfulness to that. You yeah, know? that was definitely an amusing moment. Yeah. Hey, you know what I just thought about uh, while we were talking? Uh, I want to go back to uh, to Blade Runner and the style and the visual aesthetics of cyberpunk for a bit. Yeah. Here's, here's uh, another uh, funny little factoid for you. So maybe two months or so ago, I watched another anime a TV series called Turn A Gundam, which uh-huh. is one of the Gundam TV series. This one was made from the late 90s. I think 1999 was when it came out. But that Gundam show actually had mecha designs by Sid Mead, who was an American, or who was an American uh, designer. I think he passed away recently, or maybe in the past couple of years, but he was a, a famous uh, futurist and designer, a visual stylist known for designing the stuff in Blade Runner. He was oh. the guy who designed the visual style of Blade Runner. Cool. And from what I also remember, when Ridley Scott was beginning production on Blade Runner, uh, his before he got Sid Mead, his first choice to be the production or concept artist for the movie was Mobius. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, but I guess Mobius ended up working on something else, and yeah, and uh, that's why Sid Mead ended up coming on board. But yeah, there's there's another comic book connection. Mobius, one of the most famous yeah. uh, European European comic comics artists ever. That's nuts, man. Interesting to know. Good to learn. Yeah, Here, here's a yeah. question for you, Albert. I for, I meant to ask it earlier, but I forgot because we were we were talking about how humanity sucks. but but, uh i was gonna ask you what was the when was the first time you experienced akira the movie when was the first time you watched the film oh so uh i feel like my stories constantly go back to the same uh focal point and uh i will reiterate this yet again but as a kid I I didn't have access to a lot of uh, comic books or manga or really that kind of entertainment just because my family didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have – that stuff wasn't readily available. There was no YouTube. So, you know, it was just – it was just very limiting what I did have access to, right? So uh, I would go to comic book stores – and I think I was always aware of Akira uh, because, you know, maybe there'd be, yeah, it's famous. There'd be art here or there. Um, occasionally I'd see someone talk about it on TV. And, you know, as a kid, I don't think I thought about it too much because uh, I'd see it on like Siskel and Ebert or something. And I'd be like, oh, it's oh, a cartoon. Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting because. It Siskel and Ebert. Well, I'm, I'm just, I'm. Uh, I don't even know if that's for sure, but uh, like I'm, I, I I'd have to think that 
I want to say that they might have mentioned it at some point, and that might be one of my earliest like references to it. If not Siskel okay. and Ebert, then it's got to be some, uh, you know, one of those just public or public televised shows that reviews film or TV yeah. that that talked about it. So, and just because I was a kid and I was into cartoons and you know, it, it wasn't like we had cartoons available all the time. Uh, so anytime I saw anything with cartoons, yeah. I was instantly captivated by it. Right. So again, for, for those of you, you know, young people or whatever you are, uh, whatever you, are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like if you want to watch a cartoon now, you, you have like all these streaming services, you can go to YouTube, um, whatever you can, you can just watch that stuff. Cartoon network. You have an entire network to, uh, on cable TV where you can watch cartoons. But for me as a kid, not having cable, I could only watch cartoons between the hours of like noon to maybe five or something like that. Maybe even less than that. I, I want to say even like two to five maybe. Yeah. Um, but uh, so yeah. So whenever I saw anything with cartoons, I would just – sit through it just because I wanted to hear what they had to say. So I would say that, yeah, it was a combination of probably seeing it somewhere on TV as well as, uh, being peripherally aware of it when I did go to comic book stores and maybe occasionally talking to some people about it. Uh, but that, that was my first, uh, interaction or, or, uh, the first moments of awareness I had for Akira. Uh, and I would say that in terms of actually watching the film, my first time watching the film was, I think I want to say it was like two or three years ago when I bought the Blu-ray. <laughs> really? Oh, wow. Yeah. I did not know that. I thought yeah. you watched it way yeah, I don't earlier think... than that. I thought you'd seen it when you were a kid. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, so it was for me it was a thing where it was constantly lauded as a classic and uh yeah i don't know about anybody else but um uh, for but i i i certainly have a list of classics uh either movies or books that are on my mind to read mm-hmm. that you you know you put on a list somewhere to come back to someday when you have a chance to check it out just because everybody talks about it or, you know, it's held in such high regard. And, uh, when the Blu-ray came out for cheap, that was my opportunity to buy it and finally watch it. And so I did. Nice. Uh, yeah. So that, that was critically hailed and, and, uh, popular and well regarded is the dark Phoenix saga by Christopher Claremont. Yeah. Yeah. I could, uh, I, I actually did read that when I was a kid. So I would say that I was, (laughs) I was very fortunate to read that before I had developed a sense of taste. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so at least I can get that out of the way. Um, and I can say that I read it. For sure, for sure. <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> what about you, Drew? What was your first exposure to Akira? So my first exposure to Akira was when... Epic was publishing it. So I was a really little kid um, because I think it, I think Epic finished publishing it in the early nineties. 
So like from what I remember and what I what I know from looking it up in the past is is that it started coming out in like the late 80s in America and then it lagged behind the the Japanese version uh for quite some time and I think even during the the Japanese serialization I'm pretty sure or at least I think I remember hearing that there was a a pause in the middle of the run because Otomo was busy with the movie mm-hmm so that made that made it come out uh, even slower in in America too, but uh, I still remember seeing issues of Akira at comic book stores uh, when I first started going to the stores when I was a kid. So I was you know like uh, nine, no, I was younger than that. I was like probably seven, seven to nine years old, mm-hmm. going to the comic store with my dad. So I would see. Uh, you know, all the books on the rack and everything. And I, I was way too young to understand or appreciate what Akira was. Cause at that age, you know, I was like seven or eight years old. So I was more interested in, in Spider-Man, Silver Surfer. <laughs> uh, yeah. Transformers. Yeah. GI Joe comics. Uh, you know, the X-Men, you know, all, all the typical uh, Marvel heroes. Those were the things that first drew me into comics. So, mm. I remember seeing Akira just because it was so different. I remember seeing the artwork um, and it was just, even as a kid, I I noticed that it was like crazy detailed. Like I remember, I just remember one of the covers had like a building on it and it was like every single window in that building, man. Like, yeah, I, I I don't, I didn't really think about how hard it was to to draw that when I was a kid, but (laughs) it, it, it just, always stood out in my mind for being something that was, uh, you know, you don't really see that when you're looking at like Mark Bagley or someone, you know? Yeah. It, I'm sure totally a lot of artists different. try to yeah. just get it done to the best of their ability, uh, you know, for, for the time that's allotted to them. Yeah. And, and I, I still remember this other time when I was maybe a little bit older uh, I might have been in, in like middle school by then, but I remember going to a, a, a bookstore and I saw those the collected editions of Akira. And yeah, I don't think it was volume one, but I remember trying to read it and I was just like super confused, man, because I had no idea what the heck was going on. Uh, I was just enraptured by the artwork because it just looked cool, man. But yeah. I, I didn't, I couldn't follow the story whatsoever. So it, it just confused me and it wasn't volume one uh being a kid and that was a collected edition i didn't have the money to actually buy it so it wasn't like i could take it home and, and just study it yeah. it was just purely something i looked at at the store um but yeah that's how i heard of akira and and you know looking at uh the fan press at the time like wizard magazine or whatever you know they yeah. always mention things like that would always mention that akira was a classic and stuff so i was i knew what yeah. it was and I, I knew that they made an anime film because when I got, when I was probably in middle school also, I started getting into anime. So I'd start reading anime fanzines and, and things like that. And they're, they'd always hype up Akira as one of the landmark anime yeah. films. So I, yeah, I knew what it was. At some point in the mid 90s, I remember a science fiction or sci fi network, they played. Uh, the movie and I didn't have cable, but 
one of my buddies at school, he was also into the same stuff that I was into. Uh, so he he actually recorded the movie on a VHS tape so nice. that we could watch it over and over. <laughs> and nice. So he, yeah, he, he recorded that on tape and he let me borrow it. So, you know, it, he recorded it from the cable station, so it still had commercials and stuff. But, you know, I, I would still watch the movie, man. And I'll admit, Was it dubbed? Yeah, it was dubbed. Okay, was dubbed. okay. So instead of saying, Canada, he was saying, Canada, Canada. <laughs> That's what I remember. <laughs> you know, you know how yeah. the gringos be, man, those gaijin. <laughs> oh, man. It's. I'm glad that you mentioned like Wizard Magazine because that's that's definitely one of the things that probably brought it to my attention as well. Uh, you know, um, like w- listening to you tell that story, it did uh, awaken another memory that I had, which was I did actually read the manga before I watched the movie a long time ago. So. Oh, okay. The I would used to go to the library a lot, and the library would have all these wizard magazines. So I would, you know, look through those when I had the time, and that's definitely where one of the places where I got my exposure to Akira. But I do remember that the Chinatown branch library here in San Francisco, uh, when the Dark Horse when Dark Horse first started making those, uh, the thick uh, paperback edition volumes of Akira. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was reading it from from there for sure, so nice. that was that was the first time I had read that series, and I want to say I had to be in I want to say like high school at the at that time, and okay, okay. I might I might still not have been mature or advanced enough to fully understand what I was reading. Yeah. So yeah. So. Definitely, years later, when when we uh, watched the movie and would ultimately do the podcast episode on it, and I reread it for the first time since all you know, since reading it all those years ago, yeah. it, it was definitely a stark difference from what I had <laughs> read the first time. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, dude. Yeah, because because when I watched the movie for the first time, I hadn't read. Like I said, I I, I read like a random volume of the comic when I was a kid, but it, uh-huh. it didn't, it, I couldn't make sense of it, man. It was just like too far beyond me. Yeah. But when I watched the movie, I was still only like probably 11 or 12 years old, man. And and that's, I think that's too young to really understand Akira. I mean, first of all, that movie is like rated R, you know, like there's, yeah. there's like blood and gore and stuff in that film. Yeah. But you know, my, my parents didn't really know what I was watching. So whatever. I was I was watching something that I shouldn't have been watching. <laughs> yeah, you know? It's all good yes. though, man, because that turned out fine. It's all good, yeah. man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I often tell myself. Sorry, I was busy uh, trying to reconstruct myself after you deconstructed me. <laughs> but, I was yeah, stuck for a second. Movie, I was like, happened <laughs> go ahead <laughs> go ahead <laughs> yeah watching that movie when i was a kid i it didn't make sense to me either i i, I couldn't follow it um it just wasn't conventional enough for me as an 11 or 12 year old to 
really make sense of it because yeah. it was just so different from all the other cartoons I'd ever watched. And I, I, at that point, I, I hadn't really watched too many live action films either, let alone, uh, you know, like a mature kind of rated R sort of movie. Yeah. So when I watched Akira on v- VHS tape, it was something that captivated me because it was violent and because it was a cartoon and because I love cartoons, the animation obviously blew yeah. my mind. Cause I'd like, I'd never seen an, an American uh, cartoon look like that before, you know? And it was yeah. just crazy. Like even, I don't know if you remember that scene where Tetsuo starts hallucinating and he, he imagines like his intestines spill out. Yeah. Yeah. It's you, pretty, like, the way that uh, they draw it in the in the movie, like they really make his intestines. I, I don't know how to else to describe it, but like they were really bloated and yeah. fleshy, you know. Yeah, <laughs> like the texture of them was it. It was almost like uh, water balloons that are filled to capacity. There's like a <laughs> wriggliness to 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 the texture, you know. Yeah, and man. They're just spilling out of his body. It, yeah, it it was really interesting to look at that. Um, yeah, but <laughs> but the other thing about that was like you see the scene, you see that scene from his perspective first. So it's like you he imagines his his insides are coming out, and that's what you see. And then yeah. you get a shot where you you realize he's just hallucinating or getting yeah. some kind of psychic impression. And he's yeah, because you still see him like physically trying to pick up stuff, but he's just like touching air. So it, it's almost yeah. like uh, like a mime, you know, like some dude yeah. is just on the ground miming the actions of trying to put his guts back inside his body. But totally. for some reason, even as a kid, I was I was like, dude, that looks so lifelike. It's like I mean, yeah. I didn't know what guts looked like. So I mean, I, but the scene where he's like trying to put it back in his body, that was like I don't know. Even as an adult, when I see that scene, the like the the motion of it, it just looks. Yeah uh so believable you know like you can, yeah it looks like this guy is like mad desperate to put his body back inside him yeah like he's the storytelling is super um yeah it's the storytelling aspect of it is pretty impressive just because it, it's like you said for them to put those two shots up against each other like that's that's kind of next level storytelling, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, it's really well done animation. Super well done animation. And uh, what was I going to say about that scene was... Uh, yeah, I, I forgot what I was going to say. But uh, my other thought was that... Um, I will say watching it again, uh, this time just kind of being... like. It's interesting watching it like your third or fourth time because one, I already know what the story is, so I don't. This might sound a little messed up, but I didn't have to feel like I had to pay quite as much attention to the actual story because I knew, uh, for the most part, what was going on. Yeah, and I, I just kind of it gave me the opportunity to look at the actual animation, especially since I'm watching this in subs, uh, overdubs. It, yeah, it gave me the chance to soak up the actual art of it all. And yeah. 
you, you mentioned earlier that uh, like they they put a lot of detail into their world, and, and it's it's really well done because you know you have all these buildings and everything is compact, so there's just constantly a lot of stuff. If it's not like groups of people or a lot of garbage or um, mm-hmm. you know every individual window in a skyscraper, things like that, you know. Yeah. Um, like the level of attention to detail is just, it's just unbelievable. But yeah, crazy unbelievable. Yeah. But the other thing that I was going to mention was watching it this time around. Like, I don't know if they were like messing with the frame rate or what, but there's, there's a weird, like herky jerkiness to it in certain scenes that, that makes it count for, it makes it a, an unsettling watching uh, experience, honestly. Which uh, which scenes are you thinking of? Uh, like I can remember watching like the scenes where like the people are protesting, and there's just something about the way that they move. You know, it's not quite as like fluid, but I think it's pretty intentionally done. To mm-hmm. I don't know it, but yeah, just watching it again, it just it was something that kind of made the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 Um, when I was a kid, man, I, I've watched that VHS tape a bunch of times and I never really was able to make sense of the story. All I really could follow yeah. was that Tetsuo lost control. He was going crazy with power and, and Canada or Canada. <laughs> as it was dubbed yeah had to, had to stop him and like i i made i couldn't make any sense of it no matter how many times i watched it um yeah but it, it, it just always stood out to me because of the style and and how the animation looked yeah so I, I would say it wasn't until uh yeah i'd say it wasn't until i read the manga that i appreciated the story even more and mm-hmm. and me personally, I actually like the manga more than the anime. I mean, if I had yeah. to pick, right? Like, I'd, I'd say yeah. the the manga is it's way more coherent to me. Like it, yeah. the story that it, it's it's way easier to follow the story. the The characters have a lot more depth. Yeah, but the cool thing about the film is just that it's so fluid. You know, like everything yeah. is just in motion and because it's still by the same creator of the comic, it doesn't it, really feel like a cop-out yeah. either. It doesn't feel like you're getting cheated from a lack of material. Yeah, He actually started working on the film before he finished the manga, so I think it's understandable that uh, you know a two-hour film is not going to be able to cover a 2,000-something page manga. Yeah, yeah. So, so for what it is, the the film definitely does its job well, and uh, you know it, it still holds up on its own, even though yeah. uh, it's based on on a on a manga. You don't actually have to read the manga in order to figure out the film. Yeah, I was gonna mention that um, thinking about the animation also did remind me of another. Uh, I guess, I guess this might be more of a cult classic, but another animated film that I don't know if it's a contemporary, but I think it's also lauded as like another like cyberpunk uh, 
uh, like story that a lot of uh, cyberpunk fans allude to, and it's the movie Heavy Metal. You know that, Drew? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And when I was thinking about like some of the animation that I find unsettling, mm-hmm. I think Heavy Metal has some of the same uh, same style of animation, just. In some of the the more action scenes, just the way that the cameras rotate around the people as they move, mm-hmm. it's yeah. I like I don't know if their intention was to make it look unsettling or kind of weird. Yeah, it's it's almost like the flu. It's so fluidic that it's almost like the uncanny valley. Mm, you know, yeah. like I yeah. think that's that's how I can describe it. At least for me, in in terms of my viewing experience, um, yeah, I never watched heavy metal. Actually, I don't really know anything about the movie. Um, uh, yeah, I, I'm not gonna diverge too far from uh, Akira, but uh, heavy metal is basically an anthology of uh, stories about this green orb. And just its travels throughout the universe. And so you get all these uh, really weird stories. Um, and one of them in particular is very cyberpunkish. Uh, I think it ended up being, in, uh, in a lot of ways, an influence for the movie The Fifth Element. So, uh, yeah. But, yeah, there, there's definitely in that one specific story, there's definitely a lot of uh, elements that are cyberpunk uh, by design. Uh, so, you know, you have flying cars, but, and you have all this advanced technology, but again, the, the world is just garbage, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah uh, the only thing I really know about heavy metal is that it, it was based on the anthology comic, yeah, which was that makes sense. Basically, the American version of the French metal Herlant anthology that had uh-huh. a lot of uh, famous European artists in it, including Mobius. <laughs> so <there> man, go. <laughs> everything goes back around. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I I think heavy metal is considered a cult classic, so I it's worth checking out. Uh. Yeah, I'll have to look at that. I had one more thought, but I forgot. Ugh. Well, we man. Were, since we were speaking about the animation, um, maybe uh, I'll just go off yeah. on a little go bit. Go for it. Go for it. Uh, on that thought, so I was I was uh, watching this other uh, what do you call it? Uh, a video essay on Akira. Oh. I was watching the channel Beyond Ghibli. On YouTube, yeah, yeah. he mentioned how Akira, the film, uh, runs at twenty-four frames per second. Uh huh. So that's how that's how come the that's the reason why the film has such fluid animation is because they went twenty-four frames per second, whereas the the Disney films of that era, you know, they were proud to boast twelve frames per second. Yeah. So it's like. A crazy difference when you think about doubling the number of frames. I mean, I, I don't yeah. have animation experience, so I kind of wish like Zach was here so he could, you know, 
get all the technical details right. But right. if if that means like one cell is a frame, is that is that like twenty four cells for every second of animation? Because that's crazy. <laughs> that's like so yeah. much work. It's a lot of work, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that that could that again to to go back to my earlier thought could explain like why watching it especially coming from american so much american animation i found it kind of uh eerie i guess right like it's so fluid that it's like creepy <laughs> i don't know how else to describe it of the first time i ever saw high definition on television you know uh, 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 uh. it's like going from going from uh the old school boob tube kind of tv yeah we grew up on and and suddenly going straight from that to a blu-ray on an hd screen you know it's, it's yeah. like a world of difference yeah yeah uh, I remember the other thought that I was actually going to have or that I was going to mention was uh, you mentioned how you like the manga better than the uh, film. Mm -hmm. And I was going to jump in on that because I'd actually happen to agree with that. Um, but I think my reasoning is uh, for me uh, reading the manga, I did feel like there was a lot more social commentary. Yeah. And there's a lot more depth to it. I'd say. Yeah. That stuff was what I found interesting was just the things that they had to say about like government and the atomic bomb and uh, mm -hmm. just this world that they, that we live in as, as it's translated through this comic, you know? Yeah. A lot of that stuff, I, it's, I wouldn't say it's completely eliminated from the film, but it's, uh, I don't know, glossed over in such a way where yeah, it's not yeah. really a focus, right? Totally. It's, it's more, it's kind of implied, but you really have to be aware of it and thinking of it to begin with because I don't think yeah. it doesn't really spend too much time, uh, I don't know, pointing pointing the viewer to yeah. ideas yeah. like that. It, it, and it's, it's understandable. Like, it's, it's, it's a lot less time uh, that they can dedicate to yeah. those elements of the story. So yeah, exactly. I don't consider um, that a failure on the film's part. Yeah, yeah, me neither. Me neither. It's just something different. That's that's yeah. what it is. It's not like it's not necessarily worse or anything. It's just different. Yeah, totally. Like one of the things that watching it, uh, watching this film again, that I noticed, or one of the things that I wanted to make note of was the fact that. In terms of differences from the manga, uh, in the manga, there are understandably a lot more characters that they gave more attention to. Mm -hmm. But when you get to the end of the series, uh, from what I remember, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I'm what I remember, uh, a lot of the uh, characters that were that were kind of introduced as uh, well, not throwaway characters, but they were kind of introduced as adversaries to Kaneda and uh, you know, his, his group. Mm -hmm. Once you get to the end of the series, when uh, Akira basically destroys everything and they're, they're living in this new world. Uh, 
once you get to the end of the series, they they all kind of align together against the United States. From am I remembering this right, Drew? Yeah. Um, well, if not the, the United States, the the, the puppet the, government. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember the U.S. actually sent some forces in because yeah. that happened. It's like yeah. I guess yeah. Now's a good time to talk about some of the big differences between the manga and the anime, and one of the hugest differences is the title character. Uh huh. So in in the film, there's all this talk about, uh, or there there's this big thing about how Tetsuo is trying to find Akira, yeah. And we learn that he's uh, buried underneath. Uh, I forget the what you call that location, but he's like in some old the Olympic bunker, Stadium, the Olympic right? Stadium. And it's under it's underground in this he's underground in this uh, bunker where where he's I guess just kept in lockdown or something. But when when Tetsuo finally um, gets to the bunker, he finds out that Akira is not really uh, alive, alive or, or a person. <laughs> you know, like he's just yeah. body parts at this point. So they, yeah. they basically what what the government ended up doing was they they managed to kill Akira and they, they kept all of his internal organs in these jars and just stored yeah. them so that they could study him and study them and, and see how his power worked and, and things, things like that. Yeah. But in the manga, when they go to the bunker where Akira is, he's still alive. He's, he's a, bo- a young boy in cryogenic suspension and yeah. he actually, they actually wake him up and he becomes an important character in the overall story. Yeah. So it's, it, it's like a very different, uh, very different story because of yeah. that. Like, like basically the, the way I was thinking about it was in the film, right? Like it, it's yeah. basically a, a dystopian society. And I, I guess in a way you could even say it is post-apocalyptic because 30 years before the movie takes place, there's a, you know that that gigantic explosion in Neo Tokyo, and thirty years on, all these people are living uh, underneath the aftermath yeah. of that explosion. So I guess in that sense, yeah, it's it's post apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. But when I was thinking about the the comic, when I was thinking about the manga, it, it's like the manga starts off in a similar place, right? Like the there's a bomb that devastated Neo Tokyo thirty years ago, and then the story begins. But the crazy thing is, is that there's another apocalypse that happens in the middle of the story, like right in the middle yeah. of the story. Yeah. Tetsuo wakes up Akira, or I forget if it was him, actually. I think it might have been like somebody killed Akira's friend, and that caused Akira to basically unleash the full might of his power. And that causes an actual apocalypse in the middle yeah. of the story. And then the rest of the story takes place in that post post apocalyptic period. Yeah. 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 So I thought that was a pretty fascinating difference just how they approached the concept of the, uh, I guess the apocalyptic elements of it. Right. Right. Yeah. I was going to mention earlier was, uh, one of the things that the manga does is, and I'm going to, I'm going to need you to, uh, confirm this for me, but, um, 
at one point they 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 introduce that clown gang right there's that yeah. big guy and the leader i think his name is joker actually okay so in the movie he's just kind of there and then he's a antagonist for their for Kaneda's gang and then yeah, he's just like kind of gone right minutes <laughs> yeah but from what i remember in the manga he ends up joining yeah, them doesn't he character yeah yeah he so coming back for quite a <clears throat> Quite a bit and he's one of Canada's allies he joins up with Canada yeah 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 and totally. okay I remember that right yeah so the thing that I remember about the manga was and my interpretation of it was that all of the kind of just like the uh outcast characters of their world they towards the end they form an alliance and from the rubbles of everything they they essentially build a new it, like in in the post post apocalypse it's their opportunity for um you know all these players that were mm-hmm. uh essentially outcasts in in their world people that were marginalized uh, marginalized people that were uh at odds with one another in in light of the disaster they found a way to come together and they you could you could say that they are the foundations for a new and better society, like you know, <laughs> yeah. years down the road, right? Yeah, and and at least that's how I interpreted it. Was uh, yeah, like uh, the the government that's in place in 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 the manga is is one that's propped up by the United States, and uh, I think again for. Uh, for something that points back to real world circumstances and real world commentary, uh, we have to understand that Japan in the eighties was this country that survived World War II and then was propped up by the United States government as a means to essentially uh, fight for them in the cold war you know they were they were a power in the east that was built up super fast after two atomic bomb blasts that decimated their their country uh and and they were just developed and built up really fast by american powers because they wanted something in that region to act as a counterweight to the com- the threat of communism mm-hmm. and you know all these decades after all that uh all all the quick progression of their country um from from devastation like a lot of those themes are in the manga right yeah. and it's it's weird it's almost like it's a story about how as a nation they had this quick growth but they were emotionally stunted as a result of not being able to uh, address all of the things that had happened to them in in their uh, in, in the you know world in World War Two. Yeah, you know. So so as a result, all of the people ended up being kind of messed up, you know. And that's why the world of Akira has the people being as messed up as they are. <laughs> Yeah. Again, at least that's my interpretation of the whole thing. Yeah, <clears throat> that that makes sense, man. I I think 
that had to be in Otomo's mind when he was making the story. Yeah. I feel like I've seen enough interviews where maybe they didn't say that, that exact thing, but uh, they, there's definitely a lot of allusions to the idea of Japan post-World War II and it's like a uh, meteoric rise. They, they even talk about like one of the, the main symbols in, in the film is uh the uh the olympic stadium right so yeah. the olympic stadium is this thing that was built and beneath the olympic stadium is uh where they house akira this this boy who's essentially a telekinetic atomic bomb right yeah and the thing about the olympic stadium is i, I remember hearing this from some of the interviews but at the time in the 80s uh the fact that they were the, the Olympic Stadium. the 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 building of the Olympic Stadium was a big deal, you know, especially for a country that only decades earlier had, you know, seen devastation in World War II. Uh, they, they, the nation saw this as a symbol of their rise and uh, their power. You are, know, are you talking about the Tokyo Olympics that were back in like the sixties? Maybe I don't really remember uh, when the specific era was. I just remember them saying that the stadium was like a huge deal for them because, uh, you know, it was just a sign of their progress. It was a symbolic sign of their progress and uh, their advancements. But at the same time, again, uh, you you see like how the people are actually kind of messed up even though they have all this progress uh the other thing that i remember from another interview is that i think in that same era there were like a lot of student protests and riots going on at the same time too Mm -hmm. so uh yeah so definitely this was something that was in the in the air in the atmosphere you know yeah yeah I'm sure that had to have been an influence on the story. Yeah. But the yeah. The other thing is that in in the film it it kind of doesn't really seem like those themes come into play as strongly. Yeah. So yeah. what would you say are the main themes of the film version of Akira? Oh, wow. I guess the main theme <sighs> I mean, I I'd still say that the technology, you know, the 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 fear of technology and fear of uh, progressing too much too quickly is yeah. is part of it. You know, uh, there's also like the corrupt government is definitely a big part of it. Uh, it's mm-hmm. yeah, like I I'm. I'm not going to say that it's entirely different from the manga because the elements are still there, uh, but just it's just in a much more condensed version, right? Because, yeah. again, time constraints. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you still have the cults, and you, st- uh, like, one of the things that they have in the movie is uh, the cult members, right? You hope. But they're so, kind of just there in like some background scenes. They yeah, don't really take center stage. Whereas in the manga, they're 
they become an ally. Part of the story. Yeah. 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 But I guess, yeah, like, so you, you have your corrupt politicians, and because the government is corrupt, people turn to cults and conspiracy theories. Who'd believe, who'd have thought of that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know what else jumped out at me? What's that? Was uh, that scene earlier on in the film when that one uh, rebel dude is trying to escape with uh, Takashi, the, you know, one of those blue psychic kids. And he's yeah. like, he's the, he's the guy holding his hand, running, taking the kid, running through the streets while he's being, while they're being chased by the police and stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's, he, they're running through the, the crowded city streets and uh, there's some attack dogs that come after them. So, so the dude pulls out his pistol and, and shoots the dogs. Well, uh, then like there's, you know, there's like a helicopter gunship after him and like f- police on foot that are chasing him. And yeah. he gets like shot up pretty bad in the middle of the street. And he's just lying on the ground in a pool of blood while the kid is just standing like horrified witnessing all this violence happen right and then this guy's lying on the ground in his own blood he's still holding his pistol and then like like eight or ten cops come i think they're cops if they're not cops then they're military guys but i I think they were cops they they come up to him and and, you know they they surround him with with their guns pointed at him and they're like surrender but he's already like basically bleeding out to death and he's just like Kind of looks and up. They light him and up. Then like, he's got a gun, and they just start <laughs> blasting him. <laughs> he's like this guy that that can't even like look up. Yeah, he's, he's just face down in a pool of his own blood. And then someone's yeah. like, he's got a gun, and then they get their machine guns and just pump him full of lead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was a kid, that was one of those scenes that I would rewind and watch over and over, man. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, now that I've gotten a second to collect my thoughts i think i could i think i have a better grasp of what the differences thematically are between the two Mm -hmm. so i i do think that the one thing one theme that they have in common is the fact that uh their societies have progressed so far and so quickly but as a result well not even as a result but um but in spite of their technological advances, uh, it's like you said, people are worse than ever, right? Mm-hmm. So all of the institutions that are supposedly there for the people have failed them. And as a result, the people are pretty hostile towards the government as a whole, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so in a lot of ways, the, the, the primary conceit of the story is about the failure of uh, the leadership and the government to to serve its people. So mm-hmm. I, I do think that between the manga and the movie, uh, the anime movie, that element of it is the same. But I would say that the one difference between the two is that the manga focuses more on the hope in the future, in just in the very ending, uh, yeah. which I was mentioning earlier, because all of these uh, disparate elements of society all of these outcasts so you have the general who or the colonel who is you know who's dutiful but the crooked politicians throw him out you have the cult leader who uh joins with them and only wants what's best for society then you have these gangs that are for all intents and purposes hooligans but they 
I guess they bring the spirit and the the hope of change. All of them end up. They're all they're all such natural bullies that when they see an even bigger bully, they unite against it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Tetsuo is is so bad, dude. That that they know that they can't live in a world where Tetsuo is in charge. Yeah, 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 yeah. And once you get towards the end, uh, like the world is in shambles, but the spirit of of youth and the spirit of revolution is still there you know and and that's a pretty big key difference between the man- manga and the 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 film is uh the film like you said focuses more on the friendship between Kaneda and Tetsuo as it ends on this note of uh when when the film ends it's really about the two of them making their peace with each other and yeah. Uh it it ends with Tetsuo leaving with the other children to go to a new world, right? Yeah. Like it, it and, seems like the thing at the end just implies that they leave this universe and basically create their own universe. Yeah, something like that. Like I'm not entirely sure it's it's it, it might be a little too uh It's not exactly spelled out explicitly. Yeah, it's not. Exactly. But in terms of uh, you know what's left uh between canada and uh what's the girl's name k k yeah canada canada and k and uh like all you see is them just in the mess in the rubble you know you don't really see any of the other characters that were played such a big role in the manga mm-hmm. right and it just kind of ends on that note so it it is more focused on the friendship between uh, Kaneda and Tetsuo. Whereas, like I said, in the manga, it from what I remember, one of the last panels that I rem- remember is, uh, I think the Americans fly in food and supplies for these disaster survivors. And I think some of the kids end up stealing from the Americans and they're just riding off on their motorcycles. You know? Yeah, I, I don't remember if the stealing from the Americans happens at the very end, because I do remember that happening like in the middle of the story after the apocalypse happens. But yeah. the thing about the ending in the manga that I definitely remember is that Kanada, K and, and uh, I think Kai, was he still alive? I think so. I don't but, remember. But uh, basically it's definitely Kanada and, and K on their, on their bikes riding through the city along with all their friends and and allies and as they're yeah. as they're riding their bikes through the city they're joined by kind of a or Canada seems to see the spirit of Yamagata who was his other friend who died earlier in the story as well as yeah. the spirit of Tetsuo yeah even though uh Tetsuo and Akira had already uh I guess at the, at the end of everything I think in the manga, they also uh, ascend. enter. Yeah, they ascend or or go to a different dimension or yeah. a higher plane of existence or something like that. But they're yeah. basically Tetsuo's no longer with reality, uh, or yeah. you know, he's he's no longer there. But for some reason, Kanada, even though he just had this crazy battle against his former friend, he sees yeah. a vision or 
um, maybe it's a memory of Tetsuo from, you know, better times riding next to him. And yeah. as, as they're riding through the city, um, he also imagines the city. Cause like at this point, the city's all in ruins and to, like all the buildings are crushed and there's rubble everywhere. But, uh-huh. but uh, there's also a, a vision of them as they ride through the city of the city back in back to its normal state where everything's, you know, fixed and, yeah, clean and everything, and 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 that's the note that it ends on, kind of implying that there is this hopefulness to it, where uh, yeah, it's not just about the hopefulness of uh, you know, the friendship between Kanada and Tetsuo that we see in the film, but the the comic version of the ending seems to imply that uh, the hope is because the youth have rebelled and the youth. And the, yeah, you know, the 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 youth have changed the world basically, you know, and yeah. like young people yeah. with motivation and a lot of spirit and yeah. willfulness have actually <clears throat> made a difference, and now yeah. the world is going to be a better place. Yeah, I feel like a lot of a lot of the story to me seems to be about agency, right? In the mm-hmm. sense that. I mentioned earlier that Japan in this post-war era was a country that, you know, it was super successful, but part of the thing about its success was that the American government had propped it up and put so much resources into building it up into this global superpower. And it wouldn't surprise me if as a society they developed or, or there's, there's this underlying sense of just lack of control over your own destiny. Right. Yeah. And it, and it wouldn't surprise me if that's one of the things that Otomo addresses in Akira and, and something that he addresses for, well, I'm not going to speak for like all the Japanese people or the Japanese uh, nation, but you know, it wouldn't surprise me if that was something that was in the subconscious of the population, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I remember, uh, like image-wise, was at the end when they're gone, uh, when when Akira and Tetsuo are gone. There's still all this imagery uh, and like graffiti of Akira, right? And yeah. it, it feels like. Akira as a concept is no longer about Akira the boy weapon as much as it, as it is a symbol of their revolution at this point. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So so yeah, I I I I think that's stuff that's missing from the from the anime, you know? You don't really see too much of of that stuff uh for me it, it the manga does go that one step further, you know, if, if, if the manga and the anime, uh, both draw attention to, to the, uh, the social ill that that's happening in Japan, the, the -hmm. manga takes it one step further in providing a, not necessarily a solution, but a resolution, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I'd even say, it's uh it provides an additional layer of depth yeah 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 one of the things in the film that i th- i think uh 
plays out a little more strongly than in the manga uh, is probably the fact that Tetsuo is so savage. I mean, he's savage in the comic, don't get me wrong. He's for sure probably, you might even say he's even more savage in the comic because in in the comic, he straight up flies to the moon and dents the moon, you know? Yeah. Like he, he messed up the moon with his powers in the comic. <laughs> <laughs> but because the, the film is just so focused on his, uh, I guess his his addiction to his power and and the descent into madness. It, and there aren't, you know, it's it, at, at a certain point in the film, it seems like it kind of just follows either him or Canada. Whereas in the, in the comic, there's, there's more characters. So there's, there's just uh, the magnifying glass isn't on Tetsuo quite as strongly for as long, you know, I mean, there's certainly certain chapters where he is the focus, but like overall, as, as you look at the work as a whole, um, other characters have space to breathe also, but because the film just seems to focus so much on him and his, his uh, progression as a character into the depths of madness as he uh, basically gets drunk on his power. There, there's something about it that just seems to present in a very visceral way uh, this idea of people getting hooked on power, you know, and doing terrible things. Mm. Just this mm. sense of uh, just being maniacs with power. You know, power, yeah. power-hungry maniacs. You know, and I, I guess you see that with with uh, potentially with some of the other characters too, like the the government people, uh, yeah, maybe even the the military people. But but uh, definitely with with Tetsuo in the film, he's just a guy that goes nuts with his power and doesn't care uh, who he's hurting but he's just so so hooked on his power that he can't he doesn't really care about anything else. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that. It 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 makes me think of another work that came out in the same era which which had the same things to say and it makes sense considering what the 80s was like. But it made me think of uh Watchmen. Oh. And yeah. I remember this interview with Alan Moore where he talked about um, Watchmen and how, to him, one of the one of the well, to him, it's a story about power, right? Right. And in the sense that all the various characters within uh, the story have power, but they also experience a sense of powerlessness. Yeah. Along with it, and. Yeah, and I think um, in the interviews he goes on to say something to the effect of how like the 80s was just this such a crazy period because, again, nuclear proliferation had just ramped up so quickly. And for the first time in human history, uh, all of humanity realized that all humanity realized that not only could you die in the blink of an eye, but humanity itself by its <laughs> own hand out. could be wiped out in the blink of an eye. Like think about that in the eighties as, as a time period, like at no other point in time, 
like this was the height of the Cold War. So nations all around the world are building up their, their nuclear arsenals. Exactly. And uh, what was the statistic? I, I don't remember the exact number, but they essentially said that uh, with all the nukes that are ex- in existence, humanity has the ability to blow itself up several times over maybe yeah. even hundreds of times over like yeah. so so what alan moore said was like think about that like for us to have this collective awareness of our ability to commit mass suicide is it any wonder that people in the 80s wouldn't uh is it any wonder that people in the 80s didn't end up a little uh, I believe weird was how he put it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, that that was the era when when kids in school they would practice drills, you know, get under your desk and cover your head when a nuclear bomb explodes, kids. <laughs> yeah, because my desk is gonna protect me from radiation poisoning. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but I I I think that applies to Akira on some level too. Um. Maybe not so much a statement on. Well, no, that's not true. I, I'm I'm pretty sure there's something in Akira that addresses the idea of nuclear proliferation. But mm-hmm. if it doesn't direct uh, address it directly, I will say that the work does respond to the idea of living in an, in a world where like these kinds of weapons exist. Yeah, you know they. You can't help but live with the fact that they they have the knowledge that weapons that are capable of just wiping out humanity are in existence. And it's it's like that thing where if someone knew it was their last year on Earth, what, what would they do, right? So the presumption is, would you try to be the best person that you are? Uh, down to the very last moment or would humanity just go crazy and just do whatever they wanted because none of it matters anymore. Yeah. I'm pretty and, sure that's what would happen. Yeah. I, and, I have no faith in the collective will of humanity, <laughs> Albert. I, I expect the worst from everybody I meet. Yeah. And well, but think about that, right? So like, let's take that concept and, extrapolate it right so instead of this feeling that i'm gonna i have 24 hours to live i'm just gonna do whatever horrible thing i'm gonna do in the next 24 hours well instead of only having 24 hours they're living with the threat of this dagger constantly over their head yeah and if they're just living like that 24 hours a day seven days a week and their belief is at any moment we could all die, then none of it matters. And I might as well just be a bastard. (laughs) (laughs) And, but that's what you see. That's the society that you see in uh, Akira. Like the government's corrupt. Uh, The people are just disgusting. (laughs) Yeah. You know, people live like they have no hope. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh yeah, that was uh that was a lot to unpack. <laughs> yeah. It is a very fascinating film to watch multiple times because 
there's just something about the structure of the movie that I, it it doesn't make itself terribly easy to follow in terms of uh like the overall arc of the of the plot if that makes sense like uh-huh like if i'm just looking at looking at it purely from the surface right okay i can i can get what's happening the 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 government the military they they had these experiments on kids to develop psychic powers and they're keeping an eye out for anyone else who has developed these powers tetsuo develops these powers the government's trying to you know get him on lockdown and observation and stuff but he gets out of control and then his former uh biker gang friend canada as well as uh some other organizations are trying to track him down and then they get into a massive slugfest at the olympic stadium where all the players uh basically converge and then at the end of it Canada and Tetsuo uh seem to connect on some kind of emotional level when you know when 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 Tetsuo is about to turn into that blob or when he turns into that blob thing and he doesn't know what's going to happen to him somehow at the end of it he turns into like this ball of light or or enters a new universe or something mm-hmm. and that's basically how it, how it ends and it it's it's strange to uh summarize the story like that because uh-huh. i understand uh you know i understand what happened but on some level i don't really understand why or how it happened <laughs> <laughs> you know? and and it's the kind of movie where i have to watch it a couple of times to try and figure yeah. that out like that yeah. wasn't like the first time I watched Akira, that definitely wasn't clear to me. Like even even that basic plot, like I was I still wasn't sure what happened at the end. Yeah, but, yeah. But I think after watching it a few times in recent years, yeah. I made more sense of it. But it, but yeah. even even so, it's like I don't really know why all of that had to happen. Yeah. Whereas in in the in the manga, I think because there's so much more room to expand on not only the plot, but also on the themes, the ideas, the concepts, the characters, and the world, it feels like it's easier to comprehend. Because I, f- I felt like when I read the manga for the first time, like it, it just made sense like all the way through. Like There wasn't anything confusing or jarring about it, but I thought the film, there's definitely like challenging elements to it. And it... it, it it kind of feels like a movie where uh, if you just show that movie to like a hundred people, it feels like 60 or 70 people would be like, what the heck did I just watch? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you, do you get that sense also? Or am I just disrespecting humanity again? <laughs> <laughs> I think both things can be true. <laughs> They're not mutually exclusive. <laughs> well, what I was going to say was, um, no, I, I do think that there are elements of the science fiction that are, uh, what's it called? They're not surreal, but they might be more philosophical and high-minded than I'm capable of fully processing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, another thing is that the film doesn't explicitly spell out a lot of stuff for you. You have, yeah, to, you yeah, have yeah. to pay attention and figure it out on your own. 
which I think exactly. uh, a lot of people don't like to do. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, and this might diminish me in your eyes a little bit, but I think for me, after watching it, you know, several times now, uh, the way that I have reconciled it for myself is I'm still not 100% sure uh, if I'm understanding it the way that Otomo intended or if I'm even understanding it accurately. But in order for me to make sense of it, I've told myself what I need to understand to uh, I've told myself what I need to believe in order to make sense of what I'm watching. Mm-hmm. And as far as I'm concerned, that's uh, not as far as I'm concerned, but in order to watch it, that's how I have to like square that peg, I guess. Uh, you know, no, that, that makes sense though, because you at least thought about it, you know, you, you processed it, you digested it and you've, you've given it actual thought. Whereas, somebody else might just be like, what is this? I give up. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, it, I think it is a film that no matter, regardless of how entertaining it is stylistically, uh-huh. I think generally speaking, people, people aren't satisfied uh, with just something that looks cool. They want something yeah. that they can understand and make sense yeah. to them and entertains them as well. And personally, yeah. I find the movie pretty entertaining. Yeah, but I, I could I could easily imagine somebody not being able to understand the film, and because of that lack of understanding, there's just this sense that the, you know, they won't truly like it. You know, like they won't appreciate yeah. it because they don't understand the story. And I think that's that's one of the, the pitfalls of it because it, yeah. it is heavily stylized. The visual nature of this is, like we said earlier, so influential on pretty much any any cyberpunk kind of uh, story moving forward and any kind of dystopian future, anything that has a... Uh, yeah, it's, the influence is just yeah hard to calculate. Yeah, I... I, I, I don't know, like, what the stats are. But I do feel like a lot of people enjoy it for more of its visual aspects and the action. Yeah. And unfortunately, some of the more nuanced uh, elements of the movie are kind of lost in the shuffle. Or, yeah, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's. I don't want to overgeneralize, but i I could imagine that there is a kind of viewer out there who just watches it and is like, "Oh man, it's just you know it's so revolutionary to look at, and it's the thing that uh you know established what cyberpunk is, and all the explosions are cool, and yeah. like all the action is cool, and that's just kind of where they leave it and yeah there's there's a lot going on here man it's it's I think it's deceptively simple. It is. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, man. It it is it is deceptively yeah. simple. Like you can there are there are, there's definitely a lot of um films outside of some cyberpunk that I can think of that uh that have been influenced by by this as well. And um 
you know, they, they took the elements that were more sensational for sure. Right. So like one of the things that I was thinking of, uh, just came to me recently was, uh, what was that movie? Uh, Chronicle. You remember Chronicle? Was that the one about the kids finding a thing and getting superpowers? Yeah, it was the found footage film about the kids uh, finding superpowers. Right. It, and it had wasn't uh, the kid who played uh, Harry Osborn, Green Goblin. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. He was in it. That was like the thing that put him on the map. And uh, Michael B. Jordan was in it too. Yeah, Michael actually. B. Jordan, my dude, Michael yeah. B. Jordan, man. Yep, yep. But I remember uh, listening to the director. I think his name was Josh Trank. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was talking about some of his influences, and he he mentioned Akira as one of his influences, which is interesting because it's oh. not a cyberpunk film. Yeah, it's it's a yeah. film that takes place in in the modern day. But the from what I could tell of the uh, like when I think about the movie, where yeah, I, I, where I, I, I can see it, I can see it, I see. Where yeah, you're when I think yeah. of the movie, where it draws its influence is towards the end of the battle when the two kids. Uh, so Chronicle is this movie about three friends who discover that they have superpowers. Uh, but unfortunately, one of the friends is this kid who has a really crappy home life. And as a result, uh, he, he becomes a megalomaniac. Yeah, He becomes a megalomaniac. He uses the power and he wants to use it for, as he states, to be an apex predator, you know? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so the movie ends with this massive battle between the two friends that just destroys a big chunk of the city, you know? And they even have a scene where the kid's just like screaming and he just does this telekinetic blast that just shatters all these windows. And you know, it's a it's a fun movie. I like it a lot. I like I like Chronicle a lot, but uh, you know, it's definitely an example where I don't think he dug too much into the 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 more uh, thematic elements of of Akira as much as he just kind of took from the more stylistic elements and the plot elements, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you can make a case that he took the theme of megalomania. That's true. That's true. Just this idea of somebody point. discovering somebody who who lacked power in the beginning suddenly discovers yeah. he has a crazy amount of power and decides yeah. to, you know, be awful with the power yeah. he has obtained. Yeah. Like life shattered on him for all these years and now it's time for him to get his pound of flesh. Yeah. Yeah, you know? exactly. And that's, yeah, that's, that's essentially Tetsuo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were there any other uh, scenes or moments from the film that stood out to you that you wanted to mention? Huh. Let's see. Uh, no, I'm, I'm pretty satisfied with uh, what we did discuss. Do you have anything? Uh, I guess the, the one final thing that I wanted to briefly mention was the opening scene, actually, you know, the very famous motorcycle scene, that one, that scene is just crazy fun to watch, man. Like, I, I feel like if they just made that a movie for like 90 minutes, I'd, I'd, I'd watch that. <laughs> that just that do a like, synth wave yeah. with that, that, that uh, scene on repeat oh, <laughs> in a loop. Man, that, that scene is just, the animation is so 
slick, man. Like you really feel yeah. a sense of speed, but there's also so much detail in yeah in all the all the art and the backgrounds. It's just a crazy amount of like I I could only imagine like how long it took the people who yeah. who did that. You know, it must have been so much work. Actually, now that you mention it, when you talk about that opening scene, I, I do think that that's an example of something where where there was it felt like as I was watching it that again the frame rate is so quick and there's so it's so fluid that there's a weird like shimmer or flicker to it that watching it I I don't know how else uh, maybe it's just me but there is something about watching that scene where it makes me feel a tingle in the back of my spine. You know, yeah. I don't know what it is about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. One more, one more random uh, factoid that I wanted to mention. I thought it was kind of amusing, but I was flipping through, uh, you know, the, the, the Akira box set, the, for the manga uh-huh. that we got, the one that yeah. Kodansha published. Yeah. yeah. It, it comes with uh, the Akira club uh, art book. So it's like this bonus book uh, yeah. that comes with all the other hardcover volumes. But this bonus book is just a, an art book that has a bunch of additional art, covers, sketches, like all sorts of just gorgeous Katsuhiro Otomo goodness, man. And there's also some commentary and, and some interviews from him, too. And one of the things uh-huh. that I noticed when I was flipping through it was he said that he bought a lot of books for to to get photo reference for not only for cityscapes but specifically for rubble (laughs) (laughs) nice he said well that's yeah he he said that he would sometimes he would flip through a book and even if there was only just one picture that had good rubble he would buy it without a moment's hesitation (laughs) (laughs) i like that i like that that's that's dedication man yeah totally uh, like the 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 manga has so much attention to detail in the artwork with all the rubble and the cityscapes and things like that the backgrounds but i feel like uh the anime film has a crazy amount of detail also yeah so, i mean you mentioned earlier that he worked on the anime as well as the uh manga yeah, so he was the director yeah so his level of commitment shines through in both those cases right yeah it was his baby both times and he wanted yeah. to do the best job that was possible yeah and oh well, i guess this is something that should be mentioned but this has been something that they've been trying to turn into a live action film for a whole bunch of years and honestly it's not something that i feel like i need to see in a live action film yeah i know there are a lot of people that uh that that want that uh no man i'm like i have akira the anime and i i think that's a classic and often when you try to remake these in in any form you rarely get anything as good as especially when you're making when western people are trying to do a live action version of an anime that's yeah. never gone well yeah Here, here's what i'll say uh Chronicle is probably the closest that I can think of to a live action version of Akira. And that movie was good, but it's not Akira. So, you know, I can, I can watch it as Chronicle and enjoy it. So Mm -hmm. yeah, go watch Chronicle. (laughs) 
Did you know that the that the director of that live action, the Western live action version of Akira, is supposed to be Taika Waititi? Is it? Yeah. That's uh pretty random. I mean, he's not someone like I love him as a director. Like I like I I think his work is great. Yeah, he, uh, he did Thor Ragnarok. He did Jojo Rabbit, which was like my favorite movie from 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh but uh yeah, like he, I he's not someone that I would uh, not naturally associate with something quite as uh dark as um Akira. You could turn it into a buddy comedy. Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, I will say this: uh, Jojo Rabbit if, was if, about Nazis, gets, uh, so yeah. <laughs> so Isn't that a comedy? Uh, uh, I think it was sold as a comedy, but it's actually a pretty, pretty good drama. Like, I would highly recommend that for anybody. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, just imagining. What if he did his live action version of Akira and he got like Chris Hemsworth and Chris Pine to play Kanada and Tetsuo? <laughs> <laughs> See, you're laughing already, dude. That'd be a funny uh, movie, right? Yeah. Well, I was going to say they're both super old at this point. So <laughs> I don't. I, I always imagine uh, Kanada and Tetsuo as perpetually teenagers. <laughs> it's hard to imagine. Uh, Chris Chris Hemsworth and Chris Pine uh, in a high school setting, <laughs> you know, uh, these like you know thirty something uh, juvenile delinquents. <laughs> uh, doesn't make sense to me, but it made you laugh, and that's what counts. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. <laughs> Anything else you want to say about Akira? Uh, I'm pretty satisfied with what we've had to say. I, I, but it wouldn't surprise me if once we hang up the call, I'm going to be like, man, I forgot to mention this or that. So, <laughs> but as of right now, I got nothing. One, one more thing that I was going to ask you, and maybe you already answered it because you were talking about Chronicle, but I was going to ask you if you had any anything that you would recommend to people who enjoyed watching the Akira movie. If there are any other movies or things that oh. you would recommend. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would say Chronicle would be uh, the closest thing to a Occidental Akira. And, <laughs> and the fact that it's not called Akira makes it that much better for me yeah. so that I can enjoy it. So... <laughs> Uh, I would recommend that. Uh, I'm trying to think of, well, I guess you would kind of have to say like Blade Runner, right? Like if people are looking for something similar. Um, is it similar though? I mean, it's, they're both cyberpunk, but I feel like the tone of the stories are so different. That's true. That's true. I, I, yeah. Like. I mean, I would still recommend Blade Runner, obviously, because it's yeah. like one of the best movies ever yeah. and one of my favorites. But 
I don't know if it's like super similar to Akira other than the just the superficial style of them both. Yeah. Yeah, like I wouldn't dispute I wouldn't like yeah, I wouldn't disregard uh Blade Runner as a recommendation after watching yeah. Akira. I'd say if you if you haven't seen Blade Runner and Akira leaves you with a mood for more cyberpunk, then you just got to be prepared for a different type of cyberpunk experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like on that note, I, the other movie that I mentioned earlier, uh, the same thing applies, but uh, heavy metal, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. But I will say for those of you who, if you do decide to watch it, there's, there's like uh, maybe not a substantially, uh, not substantially more, but there's a noticeable amount of sex and nudity in in heavy metal. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just be aware of that. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, I guess I would recommend it if only because it's uh, another example of just a classic animation. Mm -hmm. You know. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you got anything, Drew? Anything you'd recommend? I think the main thing that came to my mind was the original Ghost in the Shell movie. Mm. So I'm talking about the anime film directed by Mamoru Oshii from 1995, uh -huh. I believe. Like that's another uh, classic of anime, and it it's cyberpunk. It's got that visual aesthetic, and the story is. Uh, I'd say for me, uh, the phenomenon that I experienced with Akira, the film versus the manga is kind of reversed with Ghost in the Shell because when I read cute. Ghost in the Shell, the manga, that, that manga, even to this day, when I reread it, it, it's still, I'm still lost because it's so like complicated, sometimes incoherent. And like, I have a hard time making sense of the comic but the movie is so tight that it, it's like simple, but easy to, to understand, even though it doesn't adapt the entire comic. It, it basically adapts uh, like a specific story from the manga. It's easier to follow. So it, it's, it, it's weird. Cause like that, that's like the opposite thing from with a compared to Akira, but uh, <laughs> ghost in the shell has that cool style and it's, it's very cyberpunk. It, it's, got great action it's about uh the man machine interface transhumanism and yeah you know what at at its core i guess yeah similar to something like blade runner it's it's about what makes us human you know and and when when artificial life or artificial intelligence uh gets too advanced what what really separates that type of sentience from actual uh, organic life mm -hmm. So yeah, I'd, I'd really recommend that, especially if good you're choice. feeling more anime. Yeah, good choice. Yeah, I can't. Well, okay, I I, I guess there is one other anime I guess I'd I'd mention. Um, and <laughs> this is funny because it, it's a uh, it's Steam Boy, and oh, yeah. it's also by Otomo. Yeah, that makes but sense. But the, the funny. Yeah, but the funny thing about that is uh, Akira was him doing cyberpunk 
and Steam Boy is him doing steampunk. Yeah, it's still punk. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one, man. Dude, yeah. I, I want to watch that one. I don't. I've never actually seen it, but it, it's one of those ones that I've I've heard of, and you know, it's got his name on it, so I, I do want to watch it at some point. Yeah, it's um, I only saw it once, and, and this was in theaters all those years ago, and uh, I remember th- it was kind of a big deal at the time because I don't think Otomo had really put out anything since Akira, I want to say. So, like, there was this just huge gap yeah. in, in between, and then uh, this movie came out, and uh, it, it's something I'll probably have to watch again, but uh, from what I remember, it's it's a much more straightforward conventional story. But I will say that the level of detail is still there, and it's a it's a pretty fun steampunk adventure story, you know, kind of yeah. kind of what you would expect uh, from a steampunk story. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, looking back, I'm, I don't think it had nearly as much to say. Like, there's like no real social commentary to it. Or anything like that, from what I do remember. Mm-hmm. But uh, still, something just wor- just worth checking out, just because of uh, the craft of it. Yeah, totally. And I'm sure there are going to be things in in Steam Boy that reflect Otomo's sensibilities as a creator in general. That you'll find. Uh, I don't know. It's interesting to watch uh, films from the same director to see if you can figure out. Like what are the the ideas and the themes that really matter to him? Yeah, kind of like yeah. look at the different movies and see the angles that that he uh, takes to examine kind of his his uh, pet themes, maybe or just yeah, it's just fun to see, fun to compare and think about. Yeah, now that yeah, now that you're mentioning it, it feels like it'd be cool if we could check that out and yeah. if I you know if I could watch that and. Now that I've finished Akira, uh, if I watch that just to analyze those those things, I, yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally, man. Yeah, maybe we'll, we'll. I will. I'll have to look it up. You know, I just thought of uh, another one because you you mentioned another uh, because you mentioned Steam Boy, but I was thinking uh, some of the other films that he worked on. There was this one anthology film called short piece so Uh this was an anime film it's an anthology film so it's actually four short movies put together Uh in one and he didn't do all four of those stories he only uh he only directed one of the four but the interesting thing is that one of the movies is actually based on a really short manga that he did called farewell to weapons now strangely enough that movie was not directed by Otomo. Otomo directed one of the other four, but somebody else adapted one of his manga for into this like 25 minute short film and a farewell to weapons. It's, it's a, an action, a science fiction action story that takes place in some kind of unspecified wasteland about this group of soldiers that are battling uh mecca they're fighting these these robot tanks in this post-apocalyptic tokyo and they're it's it's a very simple straightforward action story but i feel like 
at the end of the day when or at the end of the story when you get to the heart of it it still has something to say uh in terms of like social relevance like what you were talking about earlier in terms of uh you know weaponry building up weapons and and all the stuff about like humanity uh being awful even though (laughs) we have better technology you know it's like those those kind of themes so i i actually found the the manga of that it back in the i think in the 80s or early 90s epic did a translation of a farewell to weapons it's only like the equivalent of one issue of an american comic so it's like you know 20 something pages or i don't know maybe maybe it's 30 i forget i have to check yeah it's a single issue I don't know if that's an easy comic to find nowadays, uh, but if you can somehow track it down, it, it's definitely worth reading. Yeah. Um, man, like I feel like you opened this door. So, uh, so I looked them up, and there were a couple of things that I wanted to mention. Uh, mm-hmm. One, uh, and this is something that we should have mentioned. Yeah. But. Uh, I, I think I remember you telling me this or someone telling me this, but apparently they're doing an Akira anime series. Oh, that's, that's right. That's coming out. Yeah, that's right. So we need to mention that, that for yeah. sure. And supposedly it's going to be more true to the, the manga. original manga that was put out. So uh, it'll probably be longer uh, than the movie and broken up into segments, but. Mm-hmm. Again, it'll be truer to his original intended uh, vision. Well, not not that the film wasn't in his intended vision, but uh, it'll be truer to the manga. Yeah. Um, okay. And yeah, that, that's of, something I can get behind, man. Yeah, I mean, he worked on that, so mm-hmm. it's all good, man. Mm-hmm. It's all good. Uh, the other story that I was thinking of, and I, I can't say what Otomo's like level of involvement in this story was, but they, you mentioned the movie memories, right? Oh, short piece, short piece. Oh, okay. Memories is kind of similar though. I think that one's another anthology. Yeah. So he, yeah. Okay. That's the one I was looking at is, uh, he did a, another anthology movie called memories. And one of the stories in it is called stink bomb. And uh, have you ever seen this one, Drew? Uh, I actually haven't, but it was something that I know about. I just don't have access to it. Okay. So the movie Stink Bomb uh, is is another work that has a lot uh, – or that has some commentary about uh, society mm-hmm. in that it's <sighs> – I'm trying to I'm, – I'm looking for the words to describe it. But essentially – uh, it's the story of this man who, you know, who's kind of a buffoon, but he he accidentally exposes himself to like a device or a chemical or something like that that makes it so that he emits this uh, dangerous gas or uh, a dangerous scent that that kills people or something like that. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's basically poisonous to people. And it's a story about how, uh, you know, all of the leaders and all of, you know, all the people in the military, all of the political leaders just do all these horrible and stupid things to try to control the situation 
but they always either just make things worse or they completely disregard the people that they're supposed to be trying to save uh, in order to stop this guy mm-hmm. who's just walking stink bomb. <laughs> so it, it's, yeah, it's another uh, uh, film that he did that had something to say on, uh, I want to say it was another commentary on like nuclear proliferation and just, you know, failed government as a whole. That's a pretty creative concept. Yeah. Yeah, man. Check it out. Yeah, I'll definitely keep my eye out for a way to watch that. One more uh, recommendation that I, I thought of. Uh, and this is one, another Mamoru Oshii film. But I was thinking of Pat Labor 2. So Pat Labor 2, the movie from 1993. That's one where it's a science fiction film. It's not cyberpunk. But... Uh-huh. I would recommend that for people who liked Akira because, well, number one, just visually, the animation is just on point. It's it's incredible animation. I would still, for me personally, Pat Labor Two is probably my favorite anime film. Uh-huh. But the thing that I would that the thing that made me recommend this in light of Akira the film was because you were talking so much about uh, the social commentary and and like the the post world war two elements of, of, you know, those ideas that, that are within the Akira story. Cause with Pat labor too, that's another one that I think examines those concepts in detail because it, this, this was made in uh, 1993, but it's still like the, the people that made it like they're like this generation of, of people that grew up after uh, world war two, you know, so uh-huh. it, like there's a lot of a lot of ideas about uh, Japan's role in international politics and uh, their self-defense forces and how far they can go um, in terms of like what their activities should be, uh, what should be permitted for them. It, uh-huh. it's, it, it touches on a lot of those ideas and. And uh, like, yeah, just those elements of of post post war Japanese politics and uh, military influence in their society, um, but it, it it examines them from this lens of science fiction that's not too far out in the future and not too over the top. It, it's actually uh, a pretty slower paced, realistic political pot boiler thriller kind of story uh, uh. but yeah i would i would definitely recommend that for people that are interested in in the social commentary and the japanese political elements of akira okay. those themes yeah it's nice. totally worth watching that sounds, that sounds yeah I, I feel like i gotta check that out because like so much of that was uh the stuff in Akira that I found uh, so fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Pat Labor Two is a movie that the, the story is about like these uh, police officers that that pilot police mecca to keep uh, you know maintain law and order. Uh, in like I think in their in the movie like their future is like I want to say it's like 1999 or something like that. <laughs> like 2002 
because it, you know it was originally created in in the late 80s yeah. but it it really has a lot to say about uh the post like that period where the US occupied Japan for so many years after World War II and how how that affected the country economically and stabilized the peace but you know there's always kind of the the flip side of the question like at what cost did that come you know like yeah yeah you know and and, and like what kind of what does it do to a nation to have to live under the shadow of being basically under the influence of another nation to the point yeah. where where they're not allowed to have a, a they're technically not allowed to have a military force, you know, they, they have to call it the self-defense force, uh-huh. you know, because of world war two. And there are, there are people in the government in, in, in the movie that don't agree with that. You know, they, they want to be able to regain the glory of their military might because they have yeah. technology and they, they don't understand why they have to live in in the shadow of the u.s and and stuff like that so yeah yeah it's really fascinating man yeah it sounds like it man totally all right i guess uh that's that about wraps up this episode you got anything yeah you want to say no, I, I you want to you want to yell into the microphone one more time, dude. <laughs> Canada, Tatsuo, <laughs> Canada, Tatsuo. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Uh, all right, all right guys. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Between the Gutters. We're signing off. Peace out. Peace out, guys.